Now I wonder what do you consider to be the ultimate expression of devotion? Where have you seen someone or so devoted to someone or something? When I think of commitment and devotion, I think of marriage. So like the marriage of Melania Trump to Donald Trump, right? Uh, you wonder how does she keep up with Donald? Uh, how does Melania do it to keep up with the Donald? Or perhaps better, I think, I think of the marriage of Helen and Maurice Kay. They live in Bournemouth. Uh, they are Britain's longest married couple. They have been married for 83 years. Wow. And their marriages have had many challenges and changes. And in fact, at the moment, it is surviving Brexit. Uh, because you see, Maurice is a lever. He voted leave. Very passionate about that. Helen is a remainer. And she wants us to stay in the EU. Marriage, commitment. Now, we are in the last leg of the journey in Judges. As you know, we are in the last leg. We've been going through this uh, now for, this is the 47th sermon, I think, in Judges. And you know that, for those of you who've been with us, you know that Judges is a history of God's people as they settle in the promised land of Canaan. Now, their relationship between God and Israel is a bit like it's a marriage, really. Uh, God is their husband. He has chosen them and he's brought them in the land under a covenant of, of marriage to him. Uh, but Israel, if we know, as we've been going through this, uh, is not like Helen with Maurice. They are very unfaithful. And as soon as they settle in the promised land, they, they start disobeying God. In fact, even before they get to the land of Canaan, they have been disobeying in the wilderness. They are not very devoted to their husband. We've seen that in Judges. They repeatedly leave their matrimonial home and they seek after other husbands, other false gods, so to speak. Very unfaithful to God. Instead of worshipping the one true God, they worship other things. But today we'll see something we have not seen in Judges. Something completely different. We'll see in Judges 20 a different Israel. Israel very devoted to God in quite painful circumstance. And as we have noted, those of you who have been with us, Judges 17, chapter 17 to verse 21 in the book of Judges, actually is an appendix to the book of Judges. The events happening here do not happen after Samson in chapter 16. They're actually happening very early in the history of Judges. We think perhaps before Judges chapter 3. And this story we are looking at today, Judges 20, to make life more complicated for you. So what we're, the section we are looking at is an appendix of the book. And to make life even more complicated for you, Judges 20 we are looking at, we are in the middle of a story that began in Judges 19. And you remember in Judges 19, for those of you who remember who came in the evening, uh, that a terrible evil has happened in Israel. And people of God must now make a choice. Are we going to stand with God? Or are we going to stand with sin? Now you might wonder why we're looking at this passage, given we're in Bexley Heath. We are not in the land of Canaan. We are in Bexley Heath in 2018. We are not Israel. We are the church of God in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So the question we are asking today is this. 
Does God still call us, the church, to stand with him against sin in our individual lives and among us? Does God still do that? As he did with Israel, is he still calling us to do the same? And if God still calls us to do that, how are you doing with that? Are you standing against sin in your life? Are you standing with God against sin in your life? Are you standing with God against sin in the church here? Well, to help us answer this question, turn with me to Judges chapter 20, verse 1. And the first truth I want us to learn from this passage, the first truth is we are not immune or exempt from sin among us. This church is not immune or exempt from sin happening among us. Your life is not immune from sin. Now imagine with me for a minute that you are a journalist for the Jerusalem Times in ancient Israel. So your boss comes to you and says, oh, there's a breaking story happening in Mizpah. Mizpah is in central Israel. It's not far from here. I need you to go down there and cover the story for us. And so off you go, perhaps on your donkey or, uh, or on foot. Uh, it's seven miles, actually, from Jerusalem. And uh, after a few hours, you arrive in Mizpah. But there's only one problem when you arrive. You can't get into the town. The road into the town is like the M25. It's a choker block. It seems like everywhere you look, people are pouring into this little town. They're coming from everywhere. And they're all trying to get into this town of Mizpah. And as you look around, you see there are men from Dan, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali. There are people with strange accents from Gilead on the other side of the Jordan. They are all trying to come into this little town. So what do you do? You're a journalist, right? You, you grab your notebook and you start asking around, well, what's going on here? Why are you guys here? What are these priests doing here? Why do we have these soldiers here? 400,000, what are they doing here? And then people are whispering, look, something about a dead body. Packages we received. Somebody has died. An enemy has perhaps caused this to happen. We have come here to fight. We don't really know why, but this is why we are here. Well, here is our Judges, chapter 1, verse 3, records that sin. Uh, chapter 20, verse 1 to 3, sorry. Chapter 20, verse 1 to 3 uh, says this. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That means the whole of Israel, really. Including the land of Gilead, on the other side of the Jordan. And the congregation assembled as one man. Complete unity to the Lord at Mizpah. Verse 2 says this, And the chiefs, that the leaders of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on the foot that drew the sword. They are ready for war. Verse 3 says this, Now the people of Benjamin, another tribe within Israel, heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. They haven't come along. And the people of Israel said, those who gathered, tell us, how did this evil happen? So we see here that all of Israel has come to Mizpah and they want to find out how did some evil, some terrible thing happen. What is this evil thing? Well, if you are with us or if you read chapter 19, you know that it is there in chapter 19. 
And I won't go through the details, but essentially, a young woman has died a terrible death. And here now, listen carefully, here is her husband's version of events. Look at verse 4 to verse 7. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, so he's responding to the question of how the evil happened. He said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine, that means a second class wife, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me, and they surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. They came to kill me, and they violated my concubine. And she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces, 12 pieces actually, and sent her through all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they, that is the people of Gibeah, and the country, I guess, is holding them to account, have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Then he says this, Behold, you people of Israel, all of you here, give your advice and counsel here. He says, do something about it. Now, <laughs> those of you who are here, or your second time to read the 19, or you were just here for the last two sermons, you know that there is this version of events are not quite how things happened. Uh, the husband, this Levite, the priest, he's done a bit of a spin to the event, okay? He's changed a few facts to make himself look good. So, for example, he has left out the part where, actually, it was him who handed his own wife to the men of Gibeah to protect himself, not from death, but from physical sexual abuse. He handed her to them because they came for him. This is a new Sodom, Gibeah. But he handed his own wife. He's also forgotten now he's, he's not even thinking about the terrible thing he's done of cutting her up, which a priest shouldn't do. He's taking no responsibility for that. So he's spinning it to, for, to look good, to cover up his own sins. But he is right about one thing. He is right that the event happened. The men of Gibeah violated his concubine, and they left her for dead. And he is right that this crime should not be allowed to stand because it is a great evil in Israel. The law of Moses makes clear murder, rape are punishable by death. So he's right to demand justice. And we can imagine if we were there. Imagine yourself being there as a journalist covering this event. You can imagine the shock on people's face. They are surprised to learn that this evil has not been done by foreigners. It has been done by their own people. If you like, this has not been done by the world out there. It's been done by Christians in the church to another Christian. Israel is looking at herself in the spiritual mirror, mirror so to speak, and she sees how ugly her heart is. Israel is looking at herself and she realizes she is not immune from sin. She realizes that we are all sinners. And friends, what is true for the people of God in the Old Testament is also true for the people of God today. We are not exempt from sin being found among us. And I don't just mean... Let me put this right. 
I don't just mean the sins we see every day. Uh, sins, nevertheless, like gossip, like lies, or like laziness. I mean that you here, sat here this morning, are not immune from committing sin that shock us. Sins that you would never imagine you could commit. Or the person sat next to you can commit. We are not exempt from one day waking up and hearing a brother or sister we thought loved Jesus, was bananas for Jesus, is living in sexual sin. He stopped coming to church and is living with a woman. We are not exempt from that. We are not exempt from one day waking up and discovering that a young person among us struggles with homosexuality, tendencies. We are not immune for that because we are all sinners. We are not immune from discovering that a person among us perhaps is as an addiction to sex texting. We are not immune from that. We are not exempt from one day walking into this church and hearing that a brother or sister we thought was the pillar of the church struggles with anger and he physically sometimes and emotionally abuses their spouse or their children. We are not immune from that. We are not immune from such things. Why? Because the church is an hospital. It is an hospital where spiritually sick people go to find healing in Jesus. And guess what? All of us arrive in this church dead on arrival. We are all by nature cut off from the very life of God. We come in this church from different parts of our lives, spiritually dead before God works his work in us. And we come into a church needing to see Jesus, don't we? For Dr. Jesus to see us and to breathe life in us. And the truth of the matter is that not everyone in this, this spiritual hospital has met with Dr. Jesus. Some of you here this morning are still dead. And you go home still dead in your sins. What I mean by that is that you're not yet truly born of God. You have not reached that position of surrendering to Christ. And you have not, you've come to the spiritual hospital, but Dr. Jesus hasn't yet breathed life into you. Your heart has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. You are still a slave to sin. Still dead in sin. That's what the Bible says. If we haven't repented and to Christ, we are still dead in our trespasses. And that means, if you are dead in your sins, you are a weapon in the hands of Satan. Your sins follow you like a shadow, and they are with you not right now. And until you cry out, until you cry to see Dr. Jesus, until he breathes new life into you, Sin was be present. And it's wonderful, of course, that we attend church. It's a wonderful thing. But we have to remember that merely attending church doesn't make us followers of Jesus. We are still sinners. So, so there's sin among us by virtue of the fact that some people haven't yet turned to Christ. And the church, the visible church, has people like that. That's just a fact of life, isn't it? Think of the wedding ceremony. Not everyone who attended Meghan Markle and Prince Harry were true Christians. Of course 
not. You could pick out a few there. Oh, what is he doing here? He's just here because he, you know, he likes the, glee, the glamour of the wedding. The other reason we're not immune from sin among us is not only because some of us here are not genuinely born again. The other reason is that we, all of us, even those who have come to faith in Christ, who have seen Dr. Jesus, and have received new life from Dr. Jesus, he's breathed new life in us, we still fall sick with sin. Yes, we are alive, we are growing with good health spiritually, becoming more like Jesus, but we are not in heaven yet, friends. Sometimes we get spiritually injured. We leave the hospital, we get spiritually injured in our contact with the world. We sin, don't we? And sometimes we sin terribly. And we need to remember that. I'm remembering this point, because some of you in this room, they go, yeah, move on. Yeah, you know, it's obvious, I know that. But we need to underline that. Because you see, of the next point, we need to know that. We need to know we are not immune from sin among us. Why? Because of the next point. What's the next point? Because sin turns us against one another. Sin turns us against one another. That's the, first, the first point is why we are not immune from sin. The second point is why are we not immune? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because sin turns us against one another. So let's go back to this narrative um, in Israel. So Israel has seen the ugly stance of sin in her mirror. So the question Israel is now facing is, it knows what has happened, so it's facing a big question. What is it going to do about this? Will she, will she just hear what's happened and walk away from this, or will she respond to it? Well, the answer is in verse 8 to 10. Let's read verse 8 to 10. And all the people arose as one man, saying, none of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it by lot. That is, we're going to pick randomly. And we'll then take ten men of a hundred, that is ten percent, throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, ten percent again, and a thousand of ten thousand, I love biblical maths, ten percent, to bring provisions for the people. That when the people come, they, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. They are going to war against Gibeah to punish it for this sin. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the most beautiful and most ugliest moments in Israel's history. It is this most beautiful moment because Israel here is standing against evil in the land. It is standing with God against evil in the land. Uh, sometimes in this country we have seen an international tragedy unfold. Perhaps in Syria or Iraq somewhere or Afghanistan or former Yugoslavia. And what happens is that, you know, terrible things happen and all the leaders, they are recalled to parliament, you know, the MPs. And strangely, some of them, they are very excited. We are going to war, you know, they give interviews. Yeah, Assad must be punished. We can't stand for this any longer. There's a, there's a strange sense of excitement among some MPs when we're with, about war, isn't it? They're kind of warmongers. But often, even if the MPs are united, we often look outside Parliament. And what do we see? There we see placards. Don't bomb Syria. Stop the war. There's, the country is never united about war. 
There's always a mob, sometimes even the majority, opposing it outside. Well, not with this war. <laughs> this war is different than Israel is doing. First of all, this is a war for God. It is not a war to get rid of uh, Assad or to get rid of, to grab oil abroad or, or to do such strange things or even export democracy. No, this is a war for God and it is a war not abroad, it is a war at home. It is also a united effort. It is a war to get rid of evil in the land. It is a war at home. Look at verse 11, how united Israel is. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city. I think they're still in Mizpah, but the author of Judges is saying they have gathered the troops to ready to go against the city. United as one man. It's a beautiful moment. But it's also the most ugliest moment, isn't it? Because imagine with me, you are a reporter again for Jerusalem Times. As you look at these troops gathered there, what do you see? You see Israel's war machine ready to strike Gibeah. And predictions of victory and how this evil is going to end. Everyone is united. You see all the banners of the tribes of Israel are represented. Naphtali, Dan, the war generals, they're all there. Such profound unity. But when you look closely, you see something is missing. There's a banner missing. The tribe of Benjamin. They are not here. Let's read verse 12 to 14. Israel has 12 tribes. One tribe is missing. And the tribes of Israel, that is 11 tribes, sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this that has taken place Amen. Now therefore, give up the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin, that the tribe of Benjamin, came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. Now, we should know here something important. Gibeah is a town in Benjamin, okay? And what's happened is that all the tribes, of course, are ready to strike Gibeah, but the people of Benjamin, to which the town belongs to, have decided our family, our tribes, our tribe come first ahead of the people of God. They have decided family first, People of God second, and God last. Benjamin is saying to Israel, if you want to get rid of sin in Gibeah, you have to go through us first. And this is a heartbreaking standoff. Because you see there, friends, Benjamin is not, willing, is not only willing to die to protect the sin of Gibeah, they are willing to kill their own brothers, the people of God, for sin. They are willing to... Ima- Imagine this for a second, what's happening here. Imagine all of Britain goes to war against Dundee because of some terrible sin has happened in the city of Dundee. All of Britain is united. All of it. Because evil has taken place. Maybe aliens have landed or something. But something terrible is happening in Dundee. And then all of a sudden, Scotland says, No. <laughs> You're going to have to go through us first to get rid of this. Evil that they themselves can see clearly is evil, 
as they say goes to us. And that's why this is ugly. Because they're willing to kill their own brothers to protect sin. Friends, this is what sin does among us. And listen to me carefully. You need to confront sin in your life because your sin blasphemes God. But not only that, it destroys people around you. Your pride is damaging this church. Because when someone ragged and dirty comes to this church, I've seen it. You avoid sitting next to them over lunch. Your worship of family life is destroying this church. Why? Because it stops you from attending church at important critical moments. You have decided family first, people of God second. Your failure to watch your tongue and your constant gossip, lack of wisdom in this area, makes other believers uncomfortable to share their struggles and hurts for prayer. These are just examples of how sin damages people of God. I want to repeat what I said in morning yesterday when we met for prayer. Friends, the problem with the church, this church, is not Stonewall. The problem with this church is not Theresa May. The problem with this church is not even the neighbors we have out there that are not interested in Jesus. The problem with this church is us. Our own sin. My sin. Your sin. It is your sin that stops you praying for others. It is your sin that, is, means that, that, that has weakened your commitment to the life of God and others. And therefore, if change will happen, it's not about praying for God to send people here, friends. It is about praying that God transforms us from within to be a people who God has created us to be in Christ. And I have to remind myself, any challenges I may face in my family, at home, in my marriage, or at work, or in the church, it's not because of the people around me. It's because of sin in me, isn't it? And repentance must start with myself. I'm adding that's the same thing for you as well. Submitting to the Lord first. And that's the next truth we learn in this passage, our final truth. Sin is the number one enemy stopping us moving forward as a people, as a families, and as individuals. So how should we respond to it? We must stand with God against sin. We must stand with God against sin. Let's go back to Benjamin. We see that Benjamin has rebelled, doesn't he? And the rest of Israel is ready to fight, but they need one more thing. They need to go to God, their husband, okay? This is not an Israel we've seen before. I mean, this is, they have a PhD now in obedience, so they, they're going to God now, and they're asking God now, not whether we should fight. They know that already. They are praying the right prayer. They're saying, Lord, show us how to fight. Who should lead us? We have no leader at present. We are asking for direction. Look at verse 18. And God agrees. The people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, not should we fight, who shall go up first, as they did in Judges chapter 1 verse 1, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord answered such a wonderful prayer that he's asking for how we should do things, not whether we should do it. 
when we know the truth. If he who knows what is right and he fails to do it, for him it's a sin. And they're asking God the right question, and the Lord answers. The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Just like he did in the beginning. Judah must lead them because the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah must lead them because the Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Even though Judah doesn't have a, Israel doesn't have a king, the ultimate king will come from Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even now, Judah is leading them. Go, and off they go to war. Let's read verse 19 to 20. They are obeying God and the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. They've left Bethel, they've come to Gibeah. Verse 20, And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against Gibeah. Now this evening we're going to see how this battle, amazing battle unfolds. But the lesson this morning is simply this. Israel is standing with God against sin, and as we'll see this evening, at all costs. And I want you to understand this, this point, friends. This is not a small thing. This is a real war, okay? Standing with God here would lead to loss of lives. People die in war. It would be painful. In fact, 40,000 people will be lost on the side of Israel before they even get any close to beating Benjamin. But Israel understands the cost. It understands the cost and it loves the Lord so much, it's willing to stand with God. And friends, this is what all followers of Jesus must do. We must do the same. Now, now don't miss this point. This is vital. We've been making this point in judges. We must do this, but don't not for the, for the right reason. Okay? We must do this not because Israel here is our example. No, no, no. Because Israel here is pointing us forward to Jesus, our Lord. Because you see, as we have been studying the years in Judges, following the events that occur here, Judges chapter 1, verse 16, we, we have seen, chapter 1 to chapter 16, we have seen that Israel repeatedly fails. Yes, they have a PhD in obedience here, but they, are, you know, they have a professorship uh, in disobedience, generally. That's Israel, isn't it? So we know that Israel's devotion here is not meant to be a final destination. It is more like a road sign pointing us forward to the coming of Jesus. They are doing something extraordinary here because God has worked in their hearts so that their obedience will point us forward to the true and faithful Israelite. Friends, it's no accident that Judah is leading them. Because why? Because Israel is pointing us forward to the Lion of Judah, Jesus himself. He who comes and stands with God for us. Our Lord Jesus, by his perfect life and death and resurrection, has taken away the guilt of sin and has destroyed the power of sin forever. And Jesus will appear any moment to usher in a new heavens and a new earth, a world without sin, a world standing with God perfectly. And the good news of the Bible is this. If you are trusting in Jesus, if you are really surrendered to Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are part of Jesus' new, amazing, super-duper kingdom of righteousness. Do you see it now? If you are a true follower of Jesus this morning, there is no other way for you to live except standing with Jesus. There is no other way to live 
except standing against sin in your life and against sin among us. Charles Spurgeon says this, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer go on living in sin. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for my best friend's sake. How can I live in sin for when one such as Christ has died to save me from it? Asks Spurgeon. And the answer is we can't. We can't, friends. Because if Jesus has given us new life, we are, what Jesus does is when you're truly born again, he gives you new hatred for sin. You see sin as a knife that pierced him. You hate sin now. You're not perfect, but you hate sin. And you hate sin in your life, and you hate sin when you see it in your family, and you hate sin when you see it in the life of the church. And I know some of you sat here this morning. I know some of you sat here this morning know something of this truth in your life. Dr. Jesus has breathed new life in you. I know that. Your heart loves him. And you long to know him more and more. Our dear Sister Sandra prayed that prayer yesterday. Lord, we, we love you and we, want to, we long to know you more. And it is hard, we said. You, you love Christ, yes. And I know some of you are at war with sin in your life. You quarrel with sin every day. You're not comfortable with it. Every day you come into God repenting, weeping for your sin. And when, when you sin, you weep and repent. Why? What does he, why do you repent? Because it grieves your heart to know that you have offended Christ, your best friend. When someone points out areas where you don't show grace to others. I saw a brother yesterday, somebody pointing out an area in his life where he hasn't shown grace to someone. And I could see how crushed he was. It's not a brother in this church. He was crushed. Why? Because he's a believer and it crushes him to know that he, hasn't, he is not showing the grace that he has received from Christ as such a great cause. I know this is true for some of you. Is this you? Well, be encouraged. You are standing with God against sin in your life. And thank God for that. Thank God that it is His work of grace in your life. Because friends, don't take that for granted. Not everyone sat here this morning has this. You are alive. You are alive. You are more alive than you have ever been. Because the life of Christ is breathing through your veins. No, you're no longer a spiritual dead corpse. So I encourage you, friends, that keep standing with God now even more. You are standing against God, against sin in your life. So keep standing with God now against sin among us. You see, you're not a follower of Jesus alone. We are now a family together, aren't we? Would you let your daughter start taking drugs and simply shrug your shoulders? Would you do that? Would you just let your son go astray? Of course not. Because you're, she's your flesh and blood. He is your flesh and blood. In the same way, friends, if we are truly born of God, we are members of the same family. So we must care about the spiritual condition of the person sat next to you. 
So let me ask you this morning, how are you working to tear down sin in the person sat next to you? Who in this church are you actively praying for? I don't mean generally. I mean, who every week are you struggling for God like Epaphras? Are you struggling for God in prayer? You know their issues. You know the troubles they have. And every day you are coming to God, wrestling with them. I think it's instructive that Israel starts the war with prayer. And we know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are they? It's prayer is our means with which we fight. We put on the whole hammer of God and we advance in prayer. So who in this church are you praying for like that? Who are you praying for, for God to help you to get alongside others? Oh, friends, don't wait for a shocking sin to happen among us to, to someone sat next to you. Oh, we are so good at, at saying, oh, how can that sin happen to that brother? How can that sister wallow in sin? We never look at the depth of our own sin in our heart. Where were we? Where were we in discipling them? So come to God in prayer, friends. Don't wait until it's too late. Start now. I know these are difficult things to talk about. I know this is a long sermon even. But we must talk about them, don't we? Because if we are true followers of Jesus, we must stand with him and his people. Because you see, friends, if you hear this truth today and you never do anything about it, then let us be honest that though you attend this local spiritual hospital run by Dr. Jesus, Great Baptist Church, Bexley, if the truth of the matter is you have not met with Dr. Jesus yet. You are here. His truth don't capture you why? Because you're still dead on arrival. Quite simply, you are under the power of death. You are held in bondage by Satan. Your fate is eternal destruction. You are without God and without hope in the world. But, oh, friends, Jesus has not given up on you. Even now, he wants to set you free from the grip of sin, death, and hell. Even now, he wants to come to you to break the devotion you have to Satan. And he's beckoning you with those nailed hands of love. He's saying to you, come to me and be saved. I have died for your sins. Come and receive life now. Go to Jesus like blind Bartimaeus. The the crowd said to blind Bartimaeus, take heart, go to Jesus. He is calling you. And that's my plea for you, to you today. Run to his hands of grace and receive mercy from him. And if you do that, Jesus will forgive your sins. This very moment, cry out to him, surrender to him. And you become a true follower of Jesus. You'll be able to say now, I am alive. I am alive. And I am standing with God against sin. Amen.